When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I went outside to uh, go a few blocks. I've talked about how I go to the, the massage parlor every now and then to think yesterday. And there's no scooters out there. We live in Santa Monica. It's scooter haven. Walking around, can't find it. Going on my way back, I don't see it. And I realized that I haven't seen scooters for several days and just now noticed it because I needed one. Yeah, for context, if you don't live in a big city, it's talking about electric scooters that yeah. you can rent yes. to, to ride if you have a mile to go. Buzz them with your phone and they're, they're pretty cheap and easy. So I looked it up. Santa Monica had uh, RFPs, request for proposals from scooter companies, like nine or something companies applied, and they graded them on several different dimensions and gave them a number of points that totaled to something like 125. That Mm -hmm. gives you an idea of how many possible points you could get. And birds have been everywhere. They're awesome. They're durable. They work. It's on my phone. It's on your phone. It's on everybody's phone around here. And I live in like the central area of Santa Monica. There's yeah, bird was the clear number one yes. in our area. Yes, and prior to that, there was, I realized this same process had happened where they're whittling it down. Lime was also big and they cut them. Uh, I looked at this RFP and essentially what happened is they limited it to three companies until something like 2022. Uh, and the company is that one is called Spin. I have never heard of or seen a Spin scooter. Yeah. They won on every single dimension that they were graded on. And it's like affordability, this, that, and the other thing. I asked my brothers, like, they're not, they're not more affordable. Uh, the one thing that Bird won in was uh, ability to roll out in Santa Monica, where Bird got a 10 and Spin, then, that I've never seen, got a 9. So just to paint this picture, Bird's... Uh, there's like five on them, five of them every half block. They're ubiquitous. If you ever need a scooter, you think I need a scooter and you grab a bird. Well, what you think is I need a bird. It's I need the a bird. Kleenex yeah, yeah. of <laughs> tissues. <laughs> yes. And the one that won that the government allowed that they handed a bunch of money to, in my opinion, this is a, uh, th- that score is a clear cut, is clear cut corruption. Like, ability to roll out January 1st or July 1st. It's July 8th. I haven't seen them. It, they didn't roll out on July 1st. They got a 9. I thought you said Bird won on two fronts. Uh, I'll double, I can double check if I'm wrong about that. Uh, I think it was one. Oh, I, I thought you said they won in terms of what the local people want. Oh, it might have been local preference might have might have been Bird as I well. I thought you said Bird won yeah. local preference. Yeah, by, like a, like by a point or something. So what the people want yeah (laughs) but again it was just like they got beat by several points in like sustainability and like impact and mission and it's uh, i looked up this uh spin thing backed by ford motor company Mm. so there's a tremendous amount of money there and and again i don't know what happened but it just made me think one uh it's a shame that and maybe i should change like my my internet habits to consume actually more local politics because this as stupid as it is affects my life and as stupid as it is, it's something that I could have potentially influenced. Like the building where they probably had these discussions is a few blocks away. Uh, and it's it's just strange that we talk so much about these federal things and tax rates and there's nothing we can do. <laughs> like you get to vote once every four well, years. Well, even tax rates, the local government can change the local tax rate. Yeah. Um, what I love about politics is the people making the decision are 
sometimes completely disconnected from the decision. So governor of California is making COVID rules and he's making all these rules that are really tough if you live in downtown, but he doesn't live downtown (laughs) where he lives. He's fine. He never has to wear a mask. He has a yard. He's rich and he's in his late age and can do whatever he wants. And And I would bet money that the people who made this decision to go with spin instead of bird probably don't ride scooters on a regular basis. Yeah. And so they don't care. Like, they oh. don't they don't live in the area where you would want one. Yeah. Um and, and to be fair, like there's a downside of scooters and I get why you might want to limit them because uh they're a pain, but also uh, <laughs> like if somebody runs you over, but that that doesn't seem to mean why you should have the spin company win and not Right. Yeah, that would be a don't have scooters rule, which yes. I actually could understand if they yes. did that because I think that people are maniacs on those things sometimes. Yes. But I just love that they got to make this decision for all the people who ride scooters and they don't care at all. So to them, spin versus bird, no difference. Yeah, I'd be, uh, and then I asked you, and again, I don't know anything in particular about how this deal went down, but when I look at those scores, I go, there's no way that someone who looks at this gives it these scores without some other kind of incentive. Like It'd be cool to see who made the decision and who their lobbyists are, who their financial backers are. Yeah, and so the question that I asked you and you, you, um, recall recalled an interesting anecdote i was like do these people know if they're receiving money that it's wrong and they're corrupt and do they go oh my gosh that stings or oh you know i'm like dr evil and thinking about it or what was my suspicion is like do they somehow rationalize and justify or compartmentalize it and you told the story that i lived through of someone we knew who was a consultant for a business and when he was tasked with doing a particular project was given a budget to hire another contractor and told us proudly excitedly that he picked the contractor that offered him a kickback Mm -hmm. he got five grand because so a big company hired him and he had to pick a a marketing agency for them to work with and he had three to choose from and he picked the one that paid him five grand yeah to choose them and he thought it was awesome yeah well and i think to the point about bird and spin i believe if you asked him why did you pick them he would just say they're all the same Mm-hmm. So it's not that I did this company dirty. It's not that I stole five grand and gave them a worse product. It's that they're all the same and now I get five grand. Yeah. I think that's how he would justify it. Mm-hmm. And I was as a, the, my question was like, do they know that they did bad? And then I thought of him as like, oh, he didn't even have a sense of it. He didn't, he almost didn't have enough sense to hide from people what he did. He was like excited to talk about. Oh yeah, he obviously wasn't ashamed of it. He told us. Exactly, because he didn't perceive it as wrong or bad. And I think that that is likely how, not all, but uh, a good amount of corrupt things mm-hmm. occur is they're, they're easily rationalized as, oh, they were going to spend the money anyway, and it doesn't matter, these are all the same, and it's just one month where the birds were already there, and these guys are going to come in, and you know these guys made all, and then you can tell yourself, you know, these guys said all these things, and they're more likely to be real, because I trust them. All Like, there's all these qualitative feelings about people and things that you sure. can internally adjust to scale up and down based on how much money they're kicking your way. Sure. And uh, I think that's what happens. You know, your your brain does you the solid of being like, I feel like that guy with the money's trustworthy. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, I feel yeah. like the cigarette <laughs> lobbyist really has the nation's back. Yes. Uh, and it makes you believe it. And, and you are not a scheming, pinky in the mouth mm-hmm. dr evil you are a good person and you would say you're a good person you would say you don't lie and you yeah. would say that Listen, you need to root out corruption in politics even though that you participated we need to keep marijuana illegal because it's dangerous yeah now 
Am I getting paid by the cigarette companies and the alcohol companies to come talk mm -hmm. to you about that? Of course I am. Mm -hmm. But really, marijuana should stay illegal because it's bad. And well, there's also, uh, you're, there's degrees of separation. It's like, well, they didn't pay me to come talk to you. Three years ago, they funded my campaign and we've gotten dinner once every six months since then. But like, Oh, I'm saying if I'm a lobbyist. I, I think that what happens is the companies pay me and then I go oh, talk to the politician. You're if you're the lobbyist. I'm the lobbyist. I understand. Sorry. And the cigarette companies, the alcohol companies, they give me money to say, hey, we need to keep marijuana illegal. And then I go, sure, that makes sense. How can I justify this so that I'm not a bad person? Yeah. Let's come up with any possible reason why marijuana should be illegal. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Now I've jumped through mental hoops to make this make sense. I'll just go talk to the politicians who are making the decision and share them the obviously logically sound reasons I've come up with mm -hmm. for why we should do this. I think that's how it happens. And yeah. then the politician says, oh, well, this is the guy that donates to my campaign and he's got some good reasons. Let's just do this. Yeah, I've heard, I spoke to, um, or I've seen lobbyists discussing their job. And yeah, it's it's the same. I mean, listen, we all participate in uh, evil and corrupt systems unthinkingly and have excuses for why they work. And it's often just like, hey, this is how the game is played. Like, I didn't set up the game. Don't hate, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. But the sure. choice is, there's a, a variety of games of varying degrees of corruption that uh, if you have a job, you, you can choose to play slightly less corrupt games than, <laughs> than uh, more corrupt games. And I think that uh, while nobody's got their hands totally clean, it's probably good to just consider that. Well, I think that I think the choice comes in, in this example, for instance, what job you pick, mm -hmm. not necessarily in the moment-to-moment -moment decision you make. Because I think... It is easier for an ER surgeon to not be corrupt than a cosmetic surgeon, for instance, because that there's just like, oh, we got to get the bullet out. And I'm sure people have anecdotes of how this isn't true. But at least my my experience is that it's it's when it's an elective surgery to fix a partially torn ligament or a broken nose that all of a sudden it's easy for a surgeon to convince himself that you need more work than you do because it just happens to enrich him. But really also you just need more work than you think you did mm -hmm. when you walked in the door. Yeah, yeah. Whereas you didn't walk in the door. You came screaming in the door on a stretcher with a bullet wound. <laughs> I just kind of have to get the bullet out because I'm an ER doctor. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that necessarily the moment to moment decisions are different, but it's the, the position you put yourself in. So if you're a political lobbyist, that's just probably one of the more corrupt games to enter. So you can do it with integrity, but... Oh, I'm just thinking about, like, the guy who told you you got your nose broken. He's like, oh, it's just a small thing. You got a deviated septum. It's, you haven't been able to breathe. We're going to really help you breathe much better. Sure. And it's going to be a small thing, and it's not going to be a big deal. And you were laid out for... Two weeks. Weeks yep. with a messed up nose that didn't need to be as messed up as it was, and he made an extra several thousand dollars. Yeah, I had a broken nose, and all I wanted was a closed reduction... Mm -hmm. procedure which is not even a surgery they just basically put a screwdriver up in your nose mm -hmm. and then crack it back in place but they make you unconscious because yeah. it's going to hurt a lot and he's like oh well while you're under the punch you took that broke your nose also deviated your septum so we should fix that it's no big deal mm -hmm. but That's that involved cutting yeah which involved bleeding out of my face for two weeks yeah and in hindsight i don't think i breathe any better than i did before yes. Yes. i would have been better off if i just got the thing i wanted which was a screwdriver up the nose to yeah. pop the Cartilage back well, I think, and to your earlier point, he's able to do that because he was uh, connected to you intensely through the sales process and the performing of the surgery and completely disconnected you on those back end two weeks. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah, he didn't like, have to take care of me. He didn't have to look at you, <laughs> see you be confronted with the uh, cognitive dissonance of this is not a big deal and you just like messed up as you were sure. unable to do anything. 
And I think that... Uh, no, what he got was I came in a month later for the after photo. So he got the before photo of the broken nose yeah. and then a checkup a month later, which means two weeks were rough and then two weeks were fine. And then I show up, he goes, how are you feeling now? I go, well, now I feel fine. Goes, great. Let's take, a, is, let's take a photo. You look so, great. And this is why, I mean, Nassim Taleb talks like you need decision makers with skin in the game. You know, like that guy needs to also... Uh, be getting paid or he needs to either be your bedside nurse or <laughs> uh, receive more money when you get back to work faster. You sure. know, like he doesn't have skin in the game of the promise that this is not a big deal for this surgery. No, he needed it to look good in one month yes. because he always does before and after. Yeah. So that was his incentive. <laughs> get as much money as possible. And in in 30 days, this needs to look good. Yeah. Those were his two goals. Yeah. And it's, you know, skin in the game with politicians is like, does this scooter decision truly, can any of you raise your hand and claim that you will be affected by this decision in yeah. any regard? And of course, there's two ways to be affected. You could want, you know, this one could be better for a particular person or this one, but you guys have no skin in the game. And the only skin in the game you have, what do you know, is the payment that you receive from a company and that that makes the decision self-evident to you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so. Well, I think this is the big complaint between rural people and democratic politicians and i think between city people and some republican politicians is like they tend to go to their base and so when you're making policy and everyone who votes for you is a city person your policies don't consider necessarily rural people and if all of your constituency is rural you don't necessarily consider city people mm -hmm. and so you just end up like i don't care if this negatively affects people as long as those people don't matter to me basically mm -hmm. and so the people making the scooter decision just don't care <laughs> about yeah, yeah. who's riding scooters so and there's also not going to be a big you know i'm not i'm not about to march on the, the building <laughs> smash any windows or anything like that because because they did a poor job um there's there's a, a level of this is one of the things there's a level of corruption and lying that and it needs to be said that you can get through life successfully with yeah, we talked about this with, like, with like, online marketers. That's yeah, why they piss you off so much. The optimal level of lying if you're optimizing for income status, et cetera, is above zero. Yeah. You know? And that's and that's a difficult thing. Now, it's not necessarily the optimal level of lying if you're optimizing for a life well lived or close relationships or, or something like that. But uh, yeah, in our in the capitalist system, more than none lying, more than no lying works out to your advantage. In Because there's scale. If we had a capitalist yeah. society, but no internet and no phones, it probably wouldn't work because you're just kind of stuck to your town. Well, well, this is a, I guess we're like, this is one topic that has just morphed, but I, I actually think that self, there, we evolved lying without cities. So it works, you know? Um, and I think what really works very well is self-deception. Like not many people are excellent liars. Mm -hmm. Everybody is good at lying to themselves yeah, yeah. and then just telling the truth from their own biased yes. perspective to the people totally. around them. Um, so, yeah, and then there's like a handful of occasions where it's like, did you steal the chief's food? Like, no. <laughs> Not like there's probably some scenarios where it's uh, it's good to, to lie. But uh, do you want to switch hard pivot? Sure. So I mentioned this one to you as well, but we can go in. So there was... Not that I tremendously care about ESPN or basketball, but I somehow came across the Rachel Nichols thing, which was, story is, briefly, Rachel Nichols is an analyst on ESPN. New York Times leaked, or not leaked, uh, released an article very recently that revealed that in the last year's finals, 2020, Rachel Nichols was recorded in the bubble, which is where they uh, had to keep reporters because of COVID, 
there was a camera in her room because that's where you were forced to record. She had left the camera on. It was streaming to ESPN's headquarters. Mm -hmm. And there was a phone conversation with a friend and colleague or a mentor where she said that she didn't want this other coworker who was a black woman to be getting the job that was contractually promised to her covering the NBA finals. Mm -hmm. And she said, it's essentially, um, this is a diversity hire. They're trying to make up for their awful record on diversity by taking my job. I'm totally cool for that, but don't take my job, uh, is what she was saying. And then they discussed a number of ways of how she could deal with it, how she could position herself. She could say, for instance, that like uh, ESPN is pitting two women together and that's not what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. And this went back to ESPN's headquarters. Somebody (laughs) found this like on the server, could have buried it, and instead spread it around ESPN, which is like, man, what a... What a little mischief maker you are, <laughs> you know, taking somebody's private conversation they didn't know was being recorded. Like, I can't imagine that you've never said anything you wouldn't like your entire office to hear about. Mm-hmm. That's pretty, uh, pretty low, if you ask me. Uh, and then it created tension between these two. And now there's a New York Times article about it. What's weird is that the article came out like a year after. Came out a year after. We're, we're in the finals yeah. now. Isn't that strange? So there'd been this, yeah, stuff. And it's, it was, it was, so what's interesting is not the, the story or the, this or the New York Times. I think what's interesting is a bit what it says about the logic of the article and where we, the New York Times at least is at, or this particular writer in the New oh, York interesting. Times. Is I at. thought it was interesting that it came out near the other woman's contract negotiation. Oh, is that what she's happened? she's going to resign with ESPN or not. Interesting. Yeah, her contract runs out. So. I didn't, I didn't thought of it that from that angle. What do you think that means? I, I'm just telling you that her contract runs out soon. And this article came out about a conversation that happened a year ago. Mm. It just seems weird. Yeah, I don't know how to piece that together in terms of if that gives somebody a leverage or somebody doesn't have leverage or what. But um, so there's a couple of things that I, I listened to the segments of the audio I could find. And then some of it is being quoted from the New York Times. I feel more confident talking about the audio segments. This is a particular quote, but she's talking. Rachel Nichols is talking to this guy, Mendelssohn, and he says uh, or the New York Times says they considered a move that Mendelssohn described as baller, but hard to pull off. Telling Pitaro and others that having two women competing over the same job was a sign of ESPN's wider shortcomings with female employees, which is like, it's such a cynical way to maneuver. But I do believe what is likely happening is like, you know, here's a baller move that we could, that we yeah, could yeah, do. Yeah. We could spin this in a way that we don't truly believe it is, but we could represent it that way to gain advantage. And sure. It's like, oh, that's hard to pull off. And so I didn't, I didn't hear the article, but at least that sentence made me go, oh, this is so gross yeah yeah. like how could we talk about this in a way that like checks 2021 vibes and gives advantage to us so i don't know if that was uh the context of it because it's just that one sentence but i if so that would be gnarly um have you seen all the not all but have you seen a bunch of other espn people are chiming in and they're kind of turning on each other oh really yeah it's it's super strange so then so the the one narrative is that rachel nichols is racist and so then a bunch of black colleagues came out and said, Rachel Nichols is not racist. She helped me negotiate my contract when ESPN tried to screw me. She's been an ally for me. So a couple of black guys came out and said that. And then this white guy came out and said, Rachel Nichols is a bad teammate. How could she ever say this about a, a colleague? Like came out and kind of white knighted. And then another black guy came out 
and said, this reporter just stands on the necks of black insiders. <laughs> like he, the, the black insiders have relationships so the one with, thing the guy relation, said, with athletes. I cut and then this. He the guy said, be to careful. Get, this place is a snake pit. Yeah, yeah. No, and, so then, and then apparently this guy demands to be put in the byline or else he won't publish it because the local people have local followings and he has a national following. Yeah. And I don't know if any of it's true, but yeah. it's just interesting because like everybody's just following. Rachel Nichols is racist <laughs> and this woman is a victim. And then some black guys come out and they say, actually, Rachel Nichols really helped me and she's an ally. And then this white guy comes out mm -hmm. and says, Rachel Nichols is a bad person. Yeah. And then different people come out and say, this guy's a snake. And they're just all sounds like a bad turning person. on each other. Sounds yeah, like a, sounds like a untrust. It was like her story was the first domino. And now all yeah. these people that I know the names of because I follow basketball, but I've never heard them mm -hmm. talked about negatively. It's like once the first domino fell. All of a sudden, people started releasing a yeah. bunch of shit about their colleagues. Well, this is another, this is a quote that follows well that I wanted to talk about. So um, the guy on the statement, the guy on the call released a statement that said, just because Maria, who was the woman that Rachel was talking about, got the job does not mean Rachel shouldn't get paid what she deserves. Rachel and Maria should not be forced into a zero-sum game by ESPN. And it's like, I hate to tell you, I don't believe that life is a zero-sum game, but the number of jobs and the number of money that ESPN is willing to give is a zero-sum game. Now, can you leverage more out of them? Yes, but that's a zero-sum game. Like, there's only so much revenue being generated, and there, that, which allows for so many positions that needs to be divided in a certain number of ways. And the idea that, and I, this is where I'm, I'm heading with some of these other quotes, that like you can just give jobs to uh, people of classes or races that you think ought to get it without necessarily taking an opportunity from somewhere. Mm -hmm. Is ridiculous. Well, that's why I think it's always cool to either be an entrepreneur or to get paid as a percentage of revenue you generate mm -hmm. as a commission salesperson. Because then it's not a zero sum game, right? If you own the business or if you're a salesperson that gets 10% of all the new clients you drum up, you just make value and then take some of it. But if you're a but person, if these analysts are driving views, then it's like, oh, more more analysts. This is what better. I'm saying. But if you're but most <laughs> jobs, or at least a, a large portion of jobs. They aren't doing that. They're doing a role that's important, but isn't necessarily directly tied to generating value for the business. And so then it's like, okay, well, we we can only have four people in this position. Mm -hmm. So for every person that we hire, someone else doesn't get hired. There's just our four roles for this position. Yeah. And so in that sense, then those that's a zero-sum game. There's, yeah. there's four people that can get the jobs. And if you hire five... Everyone gets a 20% pay cut. Yeah. Well, the <laughs> so, competitive nature that you seem to describe does make sense with what I understand about analysts, which is like, look, there's not an infinite space for all of you. There's like, a lot of people that <laughs> wish their whole full-time job was to watch basketball and talk about mm -hmm. it. So the supply and demand here for roles is way off. So there, there's thousands, tens of thousands of people that will get denied a job for every hire you make. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, a handful of other quotes. Let me see. So employees were outraged when, upon watching the video, they were especially upset by what they perceived to be Nichols' expression of common criticism used by white workers in many workplaces to disparage non-white colleagues. The Taylor was offered the hosting job only because of her race, not because she was the best person for the job. Now, I don't know. Th this, this truly confused me because at some level we accept that we are doing affirmative action. Some people say it's necessary and good, and some people say that it's not good, but we're doing it. Which is to say, if you are not of a particular race, you are you cannot get a job. And then we're upset <laughs> when people say, oh, you got that because of your race. Now, it doesn't mean that you might not also have been qualified, but it does mean that you were not, by definition, competing against the entire pool of people. Well, I think it depends on what the hiring practice is. Like, if you're hiring for 10 spots 
and 90% of the applicants are Latino, mm-hmm. but you're only going to hire 50% Latino and the other 10% of the applicants are white, but 50% of your hires have to be white because it's mandated. Then yeah, of course the white people getting hired were partially hired because they're white. You have, there's a quota for five spots. But if there's not an absolute quota, then I think that's a harder argument to make. Let me give you a, then later in the article where it's okay. So this is Taylor. Meanwhile, has become increasingly comfortable with expressing her views within the company. In the spring, she admonished executives for appointing a game coverage for the NCAA Women's Final Four that did not include any black women and pressured the company to add LaChina Robinson as an analyst, which they did. Okay, that's a quota. <laughs> right. When you say there needs to be one or two or three and you put a number and you don't say, hey, I have this really great analyst and you need to hire the best analyst, that is a quota. Mm-hmm. And so if anybody in ESPN thinks that LaChina Robinson got that role because she was black, like the New York Times article says she did, I don't know why that's offensive. Mm. Now, that's not to say that LaChina Robinson might not also be qualified, but here's the problem when you have four positions and 40 qualified people. You know, it's like there's a lot of qualified people. Which of them are you going to choose to get that role? And the way that that this has been done, at least in this particular instance, was because she was black. Yeah. So it's like I'm reading this article, I'm going... How is it disparaging to say, like, you're saying that someone should get a job because they're black in one sentence, and then in another sentence, you're angry that people said that you got a job because you're black. Like, you've, you've set, this is, this is what you're demanding, is quotas. And then you're upset of the flip side of a quota, which is that, we, that's, it, it seems like if you say that, uh, if you say it in a positive, which is, we definitely need to ensure that we have a certain amount of minorities, black people, women, et cetera, that is acceptable. But if you say that same sentence with negative, then it is disparaging, I assume, mm-hmm. which is uh, you can I, the way that I heard Rachel say it was flatly like this is the case. And I'm upset about that because it didn't give me an opportunity. Why well, didn't I haven't seen the quote? What did she actually say? She actually which was incredible for someone who uh, had a hot mic on in their room and had in her opinion had her job taken was like she didn't really say anything bad she said the espn is trying to make up for their lack of diversity in the past and i think they should but i don't think they should take my job which is like well sorry <laughs> they're gonna take somebody's it's coming from somewhere it's either coming from uh, a new position that opens that will not be offered to the full applicant pool or right. it's coming from a pre-existing position now but what are what are people upset about she said ESPN. Yes, okay, so this is this is what I'm saying. It's it's viewed as disparaging to say that this woman got her position because she's black. But the and the question that was never even addressed is like, well, did she? I'm not saying that she's not. She might be qualified. But the question is, in the when when they were hiring her, was there a conversation in the room that said this person needs to be a certain skin color and gender? And that is never mentioned. Like yeah. nobody ever asks if it's the case. Sure. Uh, it's just, oh, this is disparaging. You're not allowed to say that. It's like, well, is it is it true? <laughs> uh, so I, I read this and I went, this is, you know, and, and then there was like, this is how white people talk when there's not black people around. Uh, I feel like this is just a, f- as I'm looking at this, this is going, this is creating insanity as far as I'm concerned because uh, are you, are you, how are you not supposed to see what is, is right in front of your face that, that, you're telling me that we're hiring certain people because of their skin color. And when somebody gets hired, I think it's because of their skin color. I'm not saying that they might not also be qualified, but how can I, 
cognitive dissonance these two things away? And it seems that the answer is avoid hot mics. Don't say this because you will get uh, eaten up and taken into big trouble for saying what is obvious. Uh, I have one. Uh, do you want to talk D&D? Whatever you want. I spoke to a guy. I've been doing a lot of D&D. I switched out the Charisma on Command set for Dungeons and Dragons set. Nice. We're for people that are fans of Charisma on Command, this won't affect Charisma on Command at all. Charlie's been making videos for months and months at this point. And by so, set, I mean uh, it's a wall with yeah. uh, webcam. This is this won't affect the breakdowns. No, uh, it will not. But uh, we've we've talked about potentially streaming. And so you and I have a lot of work to do. We can talk about, maybe it's interesting to people what that would include. But I, I had a chance. I just wanted to plug him because I found this guy. His name is Atmos Seeker, and he does videos of making D&D miniatures and making D&D lighting with the smoke. And since I've encountered Dungeons & Dragons, I will say I come from, like with you, this like business group of friends mm-hmm. that is uh, abstract thinkers and good at making money. And when I move to this artistic group, I'm blown away by the talent. Mm-hmm. Like every person that I talk to is the most talented person that I've ever seen. Like they're amazing artists, sculptors, painters. They they fiddle away for hours and hours to make a hobby that very few people will see. And sure. it is um it's super cool and inspiring to see like just a community of people that are not in it for the money. Uh because that has been uh, a lot of who I've known for a long time. They everything runs through like how much is this going to pay me? How much is this going to be worth it? Is it you know, well, yeah, that's how business people decide yeah. what to pursue. That's the difference between a business person and an artist. Even yeah. if they're both trying to be commercially successful off what they do, an artist pursues what they love mm-hmm. and then tries to make money off it. And a business person assesses it and goes, this is a bad market. This is a bad industry. This is not blue ocean. And they just throw it away unless they think it's got yeah. financial upside that is significant and probably achievable in the near term. Yeah. And as someone who loves to paint figures, just paints them from childhood through to adulthood because they love to do it and then praise that they can figure out how to make money off of it. Yeah. And so this guy at most secret, I mean, there's a lot of fantastic people out there that I've since seen, but he, everything from the miniatures to the filming of the miniatures to the like, just design. It's, it's, I'm, I'm blown away when I see artists focus on the small stuff. I don't know. I'm just so impressed. And it's so, it is, it is genuinely inspiring to me because the way that I have been and the way that I've been conditioned to, to be with the business is like essentialist. Like, is this a well, big... not always. You had to read the book Essentialism. Sure. Well, is yeah. I was an artist to start. Yeah. At first, you were not I, essential. I agree. I was an artist. Sorry, you were not essentialist. You I was an essential. artist to start. I, you know, focused on all the small things and every little thing had to be right and in my own thing. And I and I'm not saying that everything I did was fantastic, but I couldn't let the small stuff go, and so I had to learn to with business to pull, uh, you know, long levers that with a little bit of effort, a lot of expenditure, and throw away and say no to everything. And it, mm-hmm. it is just. Uh, he doesn't say no to everything. He like, it's like, do we? Do I need to adjust the fog machine to make it look go through a smaller vent so it looks like it's coming out of a sewer instead of just from? It's like, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's cool. And yeah, we're setting up D and D stuff. So uh, I did want to put a plug in here. If you are someone who is a DM, a miniature artist, a voice actor who wants to teach me how to do accents, or at least can reference a good place where I can go to learn accents. Uh, production, video designer, audio designer, set designer, whatever. Um, sound effects person. Sound effects person. We, I'm not, we, uh, we are looking for guidance. Um, and I don't know, I, for all, a lot of these, it's like we can't afford to pay because this thing is going to generate no money for a long time and we're going to sink quite a bit into it. 
Um, potentially there's positions down the line, but if you want to fill out the form, let us know what you do. Point us towards some of your work that can either inspire us or maybe we can have a conversation and learn a little bit for you. And maybe there's a chance, like if you have a harder concrete skill, that there is a paid position somewhere. Um, fill out the link in the description in the YouTube. It's a Google form. It just asks basically, what do you do? Where's your work? Um, so this is for people it. that would like to collaborate with us on potentially streaming D&D similar to Dimension 20, Critical Role, things of that nature. That's our aspiration. Uh, surely it will be far worse than sure. those to start. But uh, yeah, it's a fun new project. So if you want to do that, let us know. You got some stuff? Sure. Yeah, I'm doing a video potentially on video game addiction or the psychology that goes into video games. So I've been following this guy, Dr. K. And he. I watched a video of his today. I thought it was interesting. We've touched on it before. Twitch streamer slash youtuber am i wrong i don't watch twitch so i don't know if he's a twitch streamer but he He is is a youtuber okay i've probably seen his face he's a harvard guy that focuses specifically on how video games affect the brain Mm -hmm. and he just had an interesting video that i wanted to bring up he talks about feelings of inadequacy feelings and he likens it's a professional player who changes servers and feels like he sucks compared to everybody on the server but Obviously, this is applicable to people who envy their friends or feel inadequate in their dating life. And he makes the point that I think is is interesting and fair, but incredibly difficult to actually do, which was that the way to get rid of feeling inferior and insecure is to remove your feelings of superiority. Mm. And I think that's really interesting because I imagine a lot of people would want to do the former but quite like the latter. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, I want to I want to not feel inferior, I want to not feel insecure, but also they they love seeing someone that's worse than them and stomping them and saying this isn't just because I was born with a better brain. This is because I'm better than you or they see somebody who's bad at math and they're good at math and they go that guy's an idiot. He may be handsome, but he's dumb. And they love that feeling. And then they feel bad about themselves in other ways. And it's just interesting because I don't know that many people want to fo- follow that prescription of getting rid of the superiority in order to get rid of the insecurity. So I 100% agree that um, those are flip sides of the same coin. And the coin is called comparing myself and, and judging my value relative to my performance in certain areas against other people. Mm-hmm. Um, my question is, do you believe or does he believe, maybe you is the better question, that by... Uh, that it is easier to remove the superior feelings and thus the negative ones will follow. And that's like a more actionable place to start. I believe that they're connected. And if you can remove one, you will remove the other. I'm not sure that the feelings of superiority are necessarily like, do you think that's an easier in from a, from an action standpoint? I do. Okay. I do think so because I feel like often, well, for some people, I do, let's say. I think for some people, it's easier to have empathy for other people than for yourself. And so if you see somebody who's worse than you at something, for some people, especially the people that beat themselves up a lot, I think it can be easier to go, oh, well, the reason that person is struggling is because of their childhood or because of their IQ or because of the lack of training. And they can, they can extend sympathy or empathy to other people more easily than to themselves they especially perfectionists let's say will hold themselves to a standard that they would never hold other people to so i do think that potentially that practice of 
oh, I'm feeling superior, but I shouldn't. Let me put myself in that person's shoes and understand why I'm not better than them, even though in this one area I perform at a higher level, I think can be easier than giving empathy to themselves mm-hmm. for the people that are... Now, I think there's other people who are probably the opposite who <laughs> are really good at writing off their own mistakes and yeah. uh, you know have zero ability to understand other people's plights. But mm-hmm. I do think there's a level of high achievers that are just really good at beating themselves up, but, re- but pretty good at understanding that other people aren't meant to be held to that standard. And so you're saying for those high achievers, it's, well, they, in that case, they don't, do they have that feeling of superiority in the, the people that you're describing that same way or they need, would work on that? Well, I think that we all have and enjoy that feeling of superiority. Mm-hmm. I think both instincts are in most humans and have to be purposefully culled. And but I, I think some people would have an easier time purposefully culling the I am better than that person instinct. I agree with that. Rather than the I'm sure worse than that person yeah. instinct. I, I guess where I was not certain was like, oh, this is the way to go. But I, for some people, I, like, I can imagine a type where that's an easier in mm-hmm. and therefore it's kind of like a seat like... Yeah, they just they just will rise together. It's like okay, so if you want to, you you maybe one you can lower more easily for you than the other, and it tends to have a reciprocal effect on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I agree with that. In terms of action, I mean that that is good and hard. I I just am thinking I've uh, I come back to psychedelics. So if you're out there and you're wondering, oh man, I've struggled with this. I just <laughs> well, it reminded me of another thing, which was people who read they make read the comments on their Instagrams or their YouTube channels yeah, or whatever. Yeah, exactly and they what feel I, that's what I went to immediately. They feel badly because of the negative comments. I can bet with pretty good odds that you give yourself the ability to feel good off of good comments, mm-hmm. but the negative ones hit you harder. So overall, this is a net negative experience for you, but you do tie your ego to both. And the only way to let go of the negative is to let go of the positive. So I was thinking this out. I was like, okay, well to let go of feeling inferior, let go of being superior, if you want to not get affected by negative comments, don't get affected by positive comments. So what do you, at the end of the day, let yourself be affected by? I think there's I think there's the monk that moves to the mountains. I was say, congratulations, you've invented Buddhism. No, like- so I think there's the monk at the, who moves to the mountain, right? And just says, nothing. Nothing yes. is good. Nothing is bad. Yes. I break my leg and I'm not upset. I win the lottery and I'm not happy. I think most people wouldn't sign up for that because it's so extreme, even though it's, we, we understand that that's what enlightenment is. That's the end of the line for Buddhism. They just go, well, that sounds terrible to never feel happy about anything. So do you think, have you in your own life thought about how to balance this? Like where you want to end up? Well, I think I don't, in, I do believe like enlightenment in Buddhism is not like, oh, this is a good strategy for me. And so like, I'll choose the middle road because the highs it's, it is a recognition of the it, it, unavoidable recognition of the futility of any other way. I think it is a, a desperate, like, oh my God, this cycle just continues and the highs are the lows and the lows are the highs. And you're just like, and then there's a breakthrough and you mm-hmm. go, oh my, oh my God. Um, so I don't know that if the, if the people are out there are like thinking I'll go Buddhist or not, it's like, well, don't worry about it. You're not enlightened. So <laughs> at some point, the suffering will tie so closely in a way that you potentially recognize it. So have I thought about it? Um, yes, I have. And I've, I've modulated down for sure in my life. Um, 
I have, for instance, uh, in my last relationship, <laughs> uh, I think modulated the the top down, and it was some of it was like ego driven. Oh my god, I'm afraid of getting hurt. But some of it was a recognition of the highs of my prior relationship to that not being sustainable, mm-hmm. and going like you, you just that's there's something not real about it. So while yes, I am afraid of going there to a degree, it's, I am also incapable of going there because I cannot believe the high in the same way. And so for comments, I've had the same reaction, which is I'm incapable of believing the nice things said about me there in the same way. It's not like an active choice that I make anymore. And I think it started as that. So yeah, what I have come to is in many areas of my life, I've tapered. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that right? Wrong? I don't know. It's almost it's not a choice though for me it has happened based on my experiences and of the untruth of the beautiful things said about me and the untruth of the horrible things said about me and the untruth of my lowest moments and the untruth of my of my highest moments not the untruth i take that back the lack of sustainability Mm -hmm. in them um is what because they're they're true they're real it's not like they don't exist so yeah i don't know do you have any thoughts No, no. The thing I think is interesting is just how, for a lot of people, how unappealing Buddhist enlightenment can seem. It's getting more and more appealing to me, constantly. (laughs) It just involves involves flattening the feeling good when someone compliments you. I have had tiny breakthroughs of a difference. Um, I think there's a different quality that that would, uh, to the outer person, look good, like the joy that the Dalai Lama experiences. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and to the outer person, it's like, oh, that's happiness. That is something. And I have experienced limited degrees of something that I don't think is just a high. It is, it's like a cruising altitude contentment, um, which is not, it's not zero. It's not flat. It is, and it's not fair to say that it's the 10 either. It's, sure. it's like of a different quality than that. And so I think that while you might think that you're like, oh, I'm just going to go flat, I think that you like go flat and then you break through into a different dimension of contentment, potentially. Um, yeah, it's just one that comes with no financial success and without the joy of seeing your kid be born or no, a new lover. So. I don't think so. I think I think it, and I understand what you're saying. Like when you go like full tilt, it precludes action because why prefer literally eating to not eating? So this is what I'm saying is that there's the, I'm on a mountaintop in a mm-hmm. log cabin alone. And then there's anything that's not that. And if you say, I'm going to try to pursue enlightenment, but I'm also going to have a wife and kids, that's an option. Yes. That's yeah. what I'm asking yeah. is what do you think is possible to add to that life? Because I do think if you follow yeah. it through all the way, sure. non-attachment kind of precludes a marriage. Yes, 100%. Being, so, being an enlightened Buddhist monk, tough to have a wife and kids. Yeah, probably or wouldn't make you a great dad. A nine to five job, <laughs> right? So this, yeah. so this is kind of what I'm asking you is, what do you, what have you- When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply you considered maybe adding on to that that you feel would be sustainable or that you feel would be worth the lows like hypothetically yeah, yeah. your kid's going to die and it's going to suck but yeah, you yeah. get the lifetime of having that joy you know yeah. that's a non that's a non-buddhist sure pursuit potentially yeah. so i'm curious if you have any thoughts on what you've considered adding to it or if you've thought about your your ideal end state or anything like that hmm. i've considered more what i thought about subtracting from it i should say and there's and and for that list is long like the the things that I would like to be less attached to and have seen breakthroughs in, mm -hmm. um, though not complete, is long. What, I guess, it's going to be like what remains at the end of it. And mm -hmm. so what do I think will remain? Things that I've remained attached to. I've increased my attachment to my family of origin, I would say. Um, like I'd I, say a dog is net positive in my life. Yeah. The amount of negative emotion I get from being attached and to my you know, dog. And But I... Uh, it's going to be brutal when, yeah, when she dies, it's, it's going to be, be horrible. It's, but I think, and I'm not and like, I say that not because I'm like telling you, like I'm thinking of my own. Yeah, yeah. It'll be horrible. But I think when I look at the net of it, I'll go worth. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a Buddhist counter to that. I'm not saying everyone should do it, but I'm just curious if you have other aspects. It's like for me, the daily, yeah. the daily enjoyment of the dog and being attached to the dog and eventually feeling massive loss at the death of the dog. I go, this, this math seems like good math. I also think that Buddhist detachment isn't just on the level of things. It's on the level of emotional experiences, which is really where. And it's like the attachment that you have to let go of is the attachment to being happy all the time, which means you get the dog, you know, because you're okay with the crushing sadness mm -hmm. at the end of it. Um, and so I, I do think that there is a paradoxical enlightenment that is some level of enlightenment with preference and action, but the difference of experience that you have is not one of horrible avoidance. Like um, you and I are both uh, planners, optimizers, and avoiders. We like think about our future, mm -hmm. think of potential negative things that could happen and take tons of steps fearfully to avoid the bad things. Sure, drinking green tea every day to prevent cancer. Green tea, and oh my God, I don't want, you know, oh, can't make this commitment, can't do this thing. And I, I, it's not, I think, total flippancy. I don't know where that middle path is that has been described, but I, I also think that there's a Buddhist, you know, hey, I want a kid, I want a dog, I want a this, I prefer these things, and I love them, and I am, uh, I'm also not, I'm not attached to non-attachment. You know, sure. as like a I, I strategy guess, of avoiding pain. I'm not poo-pooing Buddhism. I'm just thinking of it in its, maybe in its extreme or, I don't know if the Dalai Lama has a dog, for mm -hmm. instance. I, I think of that level of pursuing it and I go, okay, well, stepping down to be the Where family, you to be being the family man Buddhist, that's much more appealing to me personally. You know yeah, what I mean? I to agree. like having the dog sure, sure. and getting a big yard instead of just being like, it doesn't matter. There is no good. Like, yeah, but I'll take my space and I'll take my yeah. good weather, you yeah. know, instead of just going to. Yeah, I prefer to live in California because the weather's nice. Exactly. Yeah. So that's a preference. That's an attachment to it, good weather. Yeah. And when it's, you know, when I have to go somewhere for crappy weather because of a wedding or business or something and it's not nice, it's a bummer. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's where I am. And I, where I am is in I'm uh, trying to reduce the attachments. The biggest ones that I'm trying to reduce are uh, and I've done a good job is like mass validation, mm -hmm. perpetual growth 
whether that's personal development, business, or otherwise. Um, and I've done a good job in those two areas. And then you think so? You don't think you've just shifted your growth? Where? <laughs> D and D optimization. Uh, well, what I have, and you could call it that. My my, what I have not been able to release is my hyperactive brain. Like if I, my brain is like your dog, if it doesn't get something to chew on, it will ruin the day. <laughs> like it needs um, that. Yeah. So sure, you could call it growth, but I, I suppose when I, what I used to perceive as growth was like, this is going to make my future better. And like my growth in D&D, not really under the per- the belief that when Regis hits level 16, that my life will be meaningfully transformed. I It's just a chewy problem for me to really sure, sure. like sink into. Um, so yeah, like uh, I guess that's perhaps the attachment that I've let go of is like uh, making my my future version of Charlie and ideal. Honestly, that's, that's perhaps a better way to say that I've let go of that. Cause what I used to think is I'm going to speak three and four languages. I'm going to be really good at dancing. I'm going to be a black belt in jujitsu. I'm going to like have all of these awesome things. And, uh, I just don't care so much about that anymore, but yeah, I'm, I think I'm probably similar to you, which is not going to let go of all attachments. I was just curious. I, I thought it was an interesting, mm-hmm. it was interesting advice and I liked the advice and then taken to infinity. I went, well, this is mm-hmm. intimidating yeah. advice now. Yeah. Basically, to saying to to let go of negative is like you you let go of all the positive. And I went, well, this is daunting. I wonder, I wonder where I'll end up landing. Yeah, I mean, we've, we're having now a conversation that I think has been had trillions of times before. But sure. it's worth it. It's like uh, there is a degree to which, and and I've had these experiences. Like uh, I forget where I was. I was in a massage or whatever, and I was like, oh, this feels good. And I was like, I can't hang on to anything. Hmm? I can't hang on to this moment. I can't hang on to like you can't. Uh, I mean, I can mention, I'll talk more. I, I broke up with my girlfriend last night and I'm very sad about it. And this conversation has been fun to distract me. But uh, there was a moment where I was like, I want to soak this this moment up. Like I want to remember this and uh, I'm going to become more present. I'm going to become more aware. And I, was, and I was like, you know what? That's great and all. And that's great for the present moment, but I can't take it with me. <laughs> you know, like we were having our conversation. I've discussed it before about, uh, an amenable breakup because we want different things. Just soak it in, soak it in. It's like, it's it's sand through an hourglass, man. <laughs> it's sure. it's constantly coming and constantly going. So there is, um, perhaps I'm more Buddhist today in that you can't, you uh, you can try and attach and hang on and things can sustain for longer. But when they're, like, when they're done, man, they <laughs> the sand is gone. Sure. And, uh, and the belief that you could squeeze it harder to make it last meaningfully is uh, a bit false while at the same time admitting some things can last for one year and some things can last literally till you die. Yeah. Um, so when all the sand goes to the other side of the hourglass, you just flip the hourglass. You're already dead. (laughs) (laughs) It never, sand never leaves the hourglass. Uh, I have a hard tangent unless you want to, I have one more thing, but go ahead. I went to the Dominican Republic for a wedding. I came back to the U S I have global entry that, Shit is terrifying. Really? Yeah. Dude, I looked bad and had my glasses on, which is not in my passport photo and this and that. And I walked up to the global entry thing. I touched the button and in a quarter of a second, it knew my name, my birthday, my passport number, all of it instantly. I didn't have to take it twice. It made me realize how, like, I I thought my phone was where- Spying on you. No, where facial (laughs) recognition was at. And I realized, no, the government's facial recognition software is 
way past whatever Apple has. They can recognize you in a millisecond. It was wild. And, and, uh, I think people who try to protect themselves from government surveillance by saying, oh, I'm not going to get the iPhone that has the forward-facing camera. <laughs> I'm only going to get the one that has the background. No, it's over for you. It's over for you. Meanwhile, they have it. They yeah. can go based just on your chin yeah. and get your social security number up in half a second and your blood type and anything else. And uh, yeah, that's over. The government's crazy scary. And that was my yeah. only takeaway. I went, wow. They pulled all of my data off this camera really quickly. Yeah, that's... Uh the only thing that I would say about that, I go, oh man, Apple. I, I guess what you just need, because that's a tremendous amount of power. And it, you never, it's, the big thing is it's just never good to have um, power that is unopposed and in one area. Like what you either need is to break down the power and distribute it or have multiple powerful forces with different things. So it's kind of, I'm like, thank God that Apple is not giving their data to the government and has different motives, even if they're both not perfectly aligned with what's best for me or the American people. Like, thank God that like the government's really powerful and corporate is just really powerful. Cause if you took one away, that would actually be worse. We're better off with, with uh, several warring powerful factions than with one mono China. Where well, it's like, I was going to say, I was going to say, then you go one of two directions. Either the government owns all the businesses like China or the, or the businesses own, own the government. government. Yeah. And, and, and people complain that, that we have that, but it's certainly not as bad as uh, it could be. So the last thing that I have today, uh, there was a video, I forget what the channel was called, I'm sorry for not shouting you out, that was on David Dobrik, and it was uh, a video on David Dobrik and cults. So David Dobrik, YouTuber, I'm not going to go too deep because he's one of the bigger ones, he's had his scandals, and he's got this group of vlog squatters who have defended him, etc. And the, the only thing that I thought, which I've mentioned before, is that uh, the things that we that we say mark a cult, like language that's internal to it, uh, people who are vulnerable being the ones who often join, people asked to enter a specific frame of reference, not connecting mo- with people outside that frame very well, experiencing cognitive dissonance. Uh, it's like true of every human organization that mm-hmm. I've ever, I can't imagine a human organization that doesn't. Well, you know the saying, what's the difference between a cult and a religion? What's Time? That? Sure. Um, but I even mean like uh, your business or your your friend group or your your things like this is really just cult is kind of like a pejorative term that we do to save ourselves from recognizing that we all experience group think go along with our groups and <laughs> have tremendous amounts of cognitive dissonance. Sure. And so what we do is we project all that onto these cults. How could they? How could they? How could they? Like, meanwhile, we've discussed at length the moral failings of American society mm-hmm. uh, and the the gaps in in what people demand on uh, in one area of life, you know, justice over here, and then another area of life, they're completely disinterested because it's not it doesn't fit well, yeah. what the culture asks for. So this is political parties. It's remarkable that every person can think the other political party is full of unthinking mm-hmm. sheep that just take whatever is fed to them, but their side's not like that. Yeah, that's that's just yeah. Well, so I think I think part of the fascination with cults is projection. Is essentially it's just like it's a way for us to go. That's all these sheeple out there. It's yeah. like dude, we're all we're all uh, massive products of the institutions, groups of which we are part, and uh, there there is no free thinking <laughs> going on at sure. all. That was my only takeaway from the video, and I made a cult video too. And I do believe just I'm not saying that everything is created equal. I think that some cults, some groups can create uh, more happiness positivity in the world and some can convince you all to commit suicide and some can come closer to describing a uh, view of the world that that enables for flourishing and others don't 
Um, yeah, not all cults are the same. They're not all the same, but they, and some of them really lean into heavy indoctrination techniques. I've talked about Choice Center in the past, which is like this personal development thing, which everybody stand up, you know, they, they, they just make you uh, want to fit in really, really bad, but so do, so do your friends. <laughs> well, you, you tried out for America's Next Top Model. Thank you. Yes, American Next Top Model. You said I that was like know a it. cult, I didn't right? know it. Oh, that was totally culty. Have I told that story here? think so i told the america's next time model oh god all right so i'll tell it briefly i in new york after i'd quit my job i was hard up for cash sleeping on ben's floor but beautiful beautiful and uh some guy took took my pictures who lived near me and sent them out and an agent called me and i went in and i talked to her and she got me a handful of gigs and one day she hit me up and said hey there's this reality tv show it's got a hundred thousand dollar prize you should go out for it and they want you to come in on uh Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. I said, okay, I'll go on Saturday. I said, uh, they want you to come in on Friday. I said, well, why did you say Friday, Saturday, or Sunday? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I go in, and I don't know what the show is. I'm sitting around, and everyone else there knows what the show is. It's America's Next Time Model. It's America's Next Time Model. It's America's Next Time Model. Oh, cool. I've never seen an episode. I have no idea right. what this is. Uh, it's all of their dreams. And the first thing they do is they make you, like, turn off your phone. And you can put it in your pocket and then they start interviewing like, why did you want to come? And it's like they're asking you these little questions. And so they keep you in the room for a while. They measure you. They tell me I'm 6'1". I'm not 6'1". I'm 6 feet tall, but I appreciate that everybody gets an extra inch. <laughs> I'm like, I'm You're in. like, hey, can you measure my penis <laughs> as well? <laughs> I'm all about it. And after like really jacking the room full of these nervous vibes, I'm feeling nervous. And they go, okay, everybody, put your hands together season 20 for Tyra. Thanks. And everyone freaks out. And I freak out. I'm like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know why I'm freaking out. Why am I freaking out? I don't know. I don't care about her. <laughs> yes. Uh, and she comes in and she says, you know, you are the you are the people that we most want on the show. That's why you're here on Friday. And I'm like, I'm special. <laughs> Tyra normally doesn't come. I'm special. She wants me. And so the day goes on and they have you do your walk and you do all your things. And, uh, Tyra asks you questions and I'm in an open relationship. She says, oh my God, me too. Like, I totally get it, you know? And every every producer who pulls me aside is asking me, what's it going to be like if you're in the house and there's girls there that are attractive? I, like, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm in an open relationship, but that would allow for something. <gasps> you know, the shock and, and awe. Uh, they love that. They really want that because there's it's 85 to 90% of the men there are gay. And so there's not a lot of uh, heterosexual drama that is likely to be created in you this house. You get some man-on-man drama. You get it, yeah. But there's there wasn't, like, you really, uh, in terms of quotas, I felt... I felt the beneficiary of a quota in this particular mm. in this particular room. Straight, semi-single man. Yeah. That was... They were, like, looking for that. And I... Not that I was the best candidate, but I was that candidate. Mm. Uh, so the day went on, and by the end of the day, they separate you into two groups, and uh, they tell you, okay... I'm sorry to say that one of you will not be coming to Los Angeles. And I'm shaking. I'm terrified. I'm nervous. I want this so bad. Please, please, please pick me. Please, please pick me. And that is not you guys. You're going to LA. Oh, we're going to LA. I'm so excited. And they hand me my packet. And I'm thrilled. And I get out of there. And it's a brick. And I don't even care. And by the time I get out of there and check my phone and connect with the world and talk to my family... I'm in a completely different headspace. I go, what was this dream that I had? <laughs> this dream where I cared about America's Next Top Model. This dream where 
I was going to go make $100,000 if I want to show. And by the way, it's not $100,000. It's a $100,000 modeling contract to go live in Milan, which sounds horrible. Yeah. Like, I don't want to do that. To be clear, it would have directly conflicted with starting Charisma on Command and moving to Brazil because the timing was the same. And then I look through this, this packet and it's 160 plus pages of like, who are the people that are close to you? Who are this? And what I can tell is just like that day, they're going to destroy me. They're going to pull all my strings, get me on the phone with the most vulnerable person, my, you know, the girlfriend that I'm in an open relationship with at the most awful time. And they're, and then I watched a, an episode and I watched Tyra just going from the nice woman that I saw being so kind to me, destroying people. And uh, I said no, but it was a very useful experience for me to see that I'm a sheeple. If like, they had taken your phone, not given it back, gotten mm-hmm. you directly from New York to an airplane yeah. to LA... You would have gone on the show. And if I didn't have a, a strong support system, like I went home, you, I was living with you and I was, I had friends and other things. If I lacked that, uh, oh yeah, like no question. I broke instantaneously. Yeah. Uh, you they, just got put back together after. Yes. I was put back together after. And it, 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 yeah, I, there's, there's people that are sturdier, but quite frankly, it's, I just had a sturdier system around me than that and, and better prospects than that. And then I, uh. Yeah, it, it was, I didn't do it. And there's a handful, yes, people have asked, is that you? That is me and a handful of the, the clips in it. <laughs> so that is, uh, it was goofy. It was a goofy day. It, in some. It's very unlike me. We could all get sucked into cults <laughs> if they grabbed us at the right time and kept us away from our loved ones. Well, this is why one of the signs of an emotionally abusive relationship is they cut you off from your friends and family. Oh, they it's so much easier. Off your phone. If I had been texting with you, just just the little like, laughter like the the like what who oh that's ridiculous would have instantly snapped me out of it but they knew that that would have not created good television i was like oh my god they're gonna lock me in a house and apps they cut off contact there's like one landline that one person gets to use at a time i would go crazy i would i would be i'd be a crazy person there and i'd be horrible and it would be fantastic television They, (laughs) they, they, they had it right i would be uh just a miserable human being, and I'm I'm very glad that I didn't do it. Nice. So yeah, do you want to do uh, questions? Well, before before we do, I want to go to our sponsor for this episode, Inside Tracker. So for those of you that aren't enlightened to the point of Charlie, where you don't care about your future self at all, I still do Inside Tracker. <laughs> I still do Inside Tracker. Well, what I was going to mention today, I thanks to tracking my testosterone, was able to double my testosterone. So the the nice thing about Inside Tracker for people that don't know. They come to your house, they take blood, they measure, I think, 58 biomarkers from cortisol to vitamin D to testosterone, all this stuff. They tell you what you're deficient in. And for things like cortisol, where it's in, uh, created in the body, or even testosterone, they tell you what lifestyle changes or dietary changes you can do to lower it in the case of cortisol or raise it in the case of testosterone. And I do it twice a year. I've been doing it for years. It's, it's very, very helpful because... I think less useful than, or sorry, more useful than knowing your absolute level of something is knowing where it's trending. And also you get free testosterone, which is good because not all T-tests tell you your free testosterone, which is the bioavailable testosterone you have, which is more indicative of um, the secondary, well, the primary effects that you one would expect from testosterone. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think it's a great service for people that are interested in health and optimization and things like that. And we have a 20% discount, I think it is, if you go to insidetracker.com slash charisma. And uh, yeah, that's our sponsor for today's episode. So I, thank I still you. do it. Thank you, Inside Tracker. I still do it. I think that one of the things that uh, 
that I'm never getting past is that I'm trapped in this mortal coil, you know? And my back, like I mentioned, I had a breakup last night, which is miserable. And then my back hurt. And I was like, this sucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, is this what I need on top of this? So I'm actually going to, in addition, I'm going to, I'm committed to like really using my standing desk and all that kind of stuff. But the inside tracker has been, uh, like I had, I had high cholesterol. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm that guy. Yeah. So I think I'm it's that guy with, in, with, uh, I'm 33. <laughs> yeah. In my life, it's been useful for different things in different phases. So at yeah. first I took it for test. I took the test for testosterone, track my testosterone, doubled my testosterone. Then my cortisol was high at one point in my life. And so I was like, oh, now this is going to be something that triggers me to start to lower the stress hormones. And then I had a magnesium deficiency, mm-hmm. like my most recent test. So yeah. throughout my life, it's brought different things to my attention, which I can then focus on and fix sometimes for short-term yeah. benefits and sometimes for long-term health stuff. Biggest thing for me, just, and then we'll close this off, insidetracker.com slash charisma, SHBG was his sex hormone binding globule. I had high T, but I would have like, um, it was not being bioavailable because SHBG binds to it and basically makes it not worthwhile. And that's very related to stress. And the thing, really one of the few things that I changed is um, uh, not eating so close to bed and sleeping uh, longer, basically, like like really allowing myself to sleep in. And my SHBG came down to normal levels. Nice. Um, so yeah, it's cool. Take so yeah, Inside Tracker, thanks for sponsoring this episode. I highly recommend it. I've been using it for eight years now, I think, something like that, seven years. So definitely recommend it. And I took boron, I think, just to be complete. I believe that was one of the things. Oh, yeah. I don't know if that did it. For me as an optimizer, it's great because they just tell you exactly what supplements to do, what exercises to do, if it's your sleep or not. And then that feels so good because you just go, oh, I'm going to take action. (laughs) And then you just go get the supplements or change your diet or whatever it is. Cool. Let's do some questions. Cool. First is, I love this channel and the philosophical discussions. Thanks. I've been building up this libertarian notion since the last election of live and let live, but I don't think I have the mental tool set to extrapolate and get to the upper limits of where live and let live. Um, or I don't, I don't have the, the mental tool set to extrapolate and get to the upper limits of live and let live. Like you guys seem to effortless, effortlessly. Uh, how do I develop those mental tool sets too? So like he hears live and let live and is like, that's a great idea and doesn't break it. Mm. Yeah. I think I try to break ideas. Is, is truly, I try to go, what are the edge cases? And some ways that you can arrive at edge cases are um, what scenario might this not work with? Why doesn't everyone do this is a good question. Like already, if that's such an obvious thing. Um, yeah, I, 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 I think I try to break ideas. That's yeah. how I interact with concepts is I, is I extend them to their absurd in order to uh, really find the, the truest principle that I can or the most universal principle that mm-hmm. I can. But I think the part that you're, you're saying, but I would like to highlight is you apply it to everything. So how can we do it so quickly when someone suggests live and let live mm-hmm. is a decade of doing it to everything. Because mm-hmm. I'm working with a writer now for Charisma Breakdowns and we're, she was showing me clips of compliments. And I was like, yeah, it's not really just a compliment though. He's giving him, an, he's giving him a reputation to live up to. That's why this is working. Yeah. She's like, how did you do that so quickly? Like, oh yeah. 10 years of breaking down social interactions is in the way that we said. It. So, so here's what, here's what people who sometimes make videos that we've had to try when we've worked with writers do is they'll see an example of three people giving a compliment and they'll say, um, oh my God, you're so amazing. I can't wait. I want to spend time with you. Oh my God. And they'll say that three times. I'd be like, look, this, this works for this person. My thought is, 
where hasn't that worked for me? Right. <laughs> like, where have I been? Oh my God, I want to like you. And they didn't like me. And then I, okay, I, I've got it. I honed in on that time where I told that person how much I liked him and it didn't work. What addition or what, in what circumstance and what frame of reference does that work? Yeah, oh, when does works, this work? It works if you first made them trust, respect, and like you. Okay, is that true? Can I think of a time where someone trust, respected, and liked me? And I said, oh my God, I want to spend time with you. And they didn't want to, or anyone in my life. And I go, I can't break that i mm-hmm. can't i can't find an exception to that um so it's i think that people sometimes um they hone into patterns and they take the simplest version of that mm-hmm. pattern as opposed to uh finding where it breaks and then tweaking it adding it and that nuanced version is now more universalizable yeah when wouldn't this work is, mm-hmm. is, a, is a common question in the charisma breakdowns and in philosophies mm-hmm. when wouldn't this work when wouldn't this work when mm-hmm. wouldn't this work yeah, util- I mean, that, that is where my brain goes. Like, utilitarianism is a great idea. Like, why don't we just add up what everybody likes? It's like, okay, what if 99 people vote they want to kill me? <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, is that the world that we want to live in? What if 51 people vote they want to kill 49? <laughs> like, uh, okay, well, the sanctity of life. Okay, well, what, what, what defines a life? You know, the end of life when you're on that, is it the last breath? You know, so this, this person up until their last breath cannot be killed. What if they kill a bunch of people? What if it's pre-birth? What if it's the moment of conception? You know, these, I, I instantly go to the edges of time and the edge cases of space to mm-hmm. try to tease out the real principle of, of anything. And so yeah, that's- so you go, I want to live and let live. Okay, when would I not want to live and let live? Yeah. It's the first question that comes yeah, to yeah. mind for you because you've been doing it for so long. Yes. And that's why it looks so quick on the and podcast. I look in my own examples. I look historically and go, okay, World War II. If there's a Holocaust going on, do I live and let live? Is that appropriate? Well, that's how we broke never lie. Yeah. Oh, I would never lie. Knock, knock. <laughs> Got any Jews in the attic? Yeah. No, no Jews here. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. so I would lie. Yeah. I would lie if there were Jews in the attic, then I was in Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. So it's like, that's that's just a, a, a habit and a practice that gets quicker and easier as you do it. Mm-hmm. Cool. Next is, uh, what are your thoughts on the hustle mentality of working hard in your 20s, building a business, and retiring slash focusing more on personal interests in your 30s and 40s? Should everyone try it? Charlie mentioned that he knew some people that it didn't work out for. Do you think that's because of that person or outside circumstances? And what are the traits of a successful entrepreneur in today's society, assuming they start out in a first world country in a middle-class environment? Great caveat there too. You know what I mean? Like you've made this question very easy to answer because you've really framed it in a way that is, I can just hit it. Uh, okay. So let's, let's take it in parts. Yep. The first piece is, do I think everyone should do it? Yeah, everyone Given should, those yeah. parameters. Uh, yes, because even the people that it didn't work out for are not worse for it. You just went to the one guy's wedding, right? Who like moved with us to Brazil. Mm-hmm. He's doing fine. He's, he had a destination wedding. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yeah. He, he like tried to start a thing. Then he joined a startup. And it went bad and, for him. Then like, he went back to working for someone else. And yeah. then he, now he's at another startup and he's the CEO of this new startup. It took him till 30. Yeah. But yeah, he's doing very well. So here's, I think generally what happens is your parents, uh, when you're little, tell you, don't do that, don't do that, because you're a crazy kid and you will stick a fork in the socket and you become risk averse by the time you're 18. What you don't realize is you're like the most risk robust from 18 to 30. You can fall so hard on your ass financially, emotionally, and recover and have an, a really amazing life. And conversely, the compounding interest of an upside of like a business that works, that pays you back and back and back, mm-hmm. has more time to grow. So- yeah, man, take those shots and take those risks uh, young for sure. Even if they don't work out, he's in a he's in the spot he would be, you know, that particular I, guy. I do want to 
throw a different angle on this. I think you answered, should I pursue risk in my 20s? Should I be an entrepreneur in my 20s? This guy mentioned hustle culture specifically. Oh, that's fair. And that to me is very different. I think of hustle culture as putting work above all else for a period of time, above your health, above your relationships, and then turning it off. And so I think there's this thought of, I'm going to work really, just put my head down, bust my ass, sell for 10 million, wake up at 30, my 20s are gone, but I'm 30, I have 10 mil, now I can find my wife, my friends, whatever. I don't know anyone that's really done that. I feel like hustlers keep hustling, they just get into the game, they keep trying to pursue the God that they've been worshiping, which is wealth. And I also know people who have managed to be quite successful while still having great friends, focusing on their health, sleeping nine hours. I know Gary Vee has changed his tune. He's like the God of hustle culture. Now he says value sleep. But at one point, I'm pretty sure he was saying, Don't everybody gets the same 24 hours <laughs> yeah. in a day. I'm going to outwork you. I'm going to work while you're with family. I'm going to work while you're sleeping. And I appreciate that he's pivoted. Everybody's allowed to change their mind. I think that's what people think of when they think of hustle culture. So for that, I'd say I would never recommend that to someone. Strongly against that. I would never recommend I'm going to put my health and my family and my friends and my social life aside while I focus only on hustling for wealth. And then 30 to 40 is when I'll really turn it around and focus on that other stuff. It doesn't work. I don't know anyone who's done it. And I even think of people who I don't know who are like huge founders um and i mean i do have one friend that worked hard and has made millions of dollars and is now really kicking but he he wasn't even that crazy about it like the people that build these insane businesses uh they often have a hard time stepping away from them actually our friend dylan who like worked for worked crazy and then sold his business to google um it can be done it can be done it's just not it's it's not what i would recommend to to anyone but it it, can definitely be done It's uh, it's not what I would recommend either. I would recommend risk, and I would. And so you ask the, the successful entrepreneur. Keep in mind, if you go to Y Combinator, they're going to give you a different answer. Because what I consider a successful entrepreneur is a successful lifestyle entrepreneur, mm-hmm. which is someone that throughout the process enjoys their life, picks an industry that they're interested in, likes the work that they do. Generally speaking, you know, yeah, I'm tired of charisma videos at this point, but it's a great, <laughs> it's a great gig. Um, so the. That is going to be persistence, um, selecting something that they are willing to be the best at. Uh, what a, The converse of that is people that select the best niche. It can be done, but what I have seen is that when people really are interested in fitness and they do fitness, they stand a better chance than if they jump into uh, XYZ product because it's, you know, fidget spinners <laughs> because they're super hot. We had a friend who made a ton of money on fidget spinners. Benji, he was on the podcast for a couple months, but like that, he's not the fidget spinner king. He doesn't care about fidget spinners. He didn't make the world's greatest fidget spinner. He just made money for a couple months on and, fidget spinners. And when they became unpopular, it's not like he was interested in curing ADD. Because no. you can imagine someone who was interested in curing ADD, they're on the fidget spinner trend, but they see it going down, but they've studied the industry. They've learned best practices of producing product. They know the psychological triggers. And so they come out with the they're next even better thing because crazy, they yeah. fell in the world. And that's our friend, Justin, who started Kettle on Fire, yeah. is just deep in consumer goods and is making other businesses in the consumer goods space. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think what doesn't work as well is when you hop around from... I'm going to do a physical product. I'm going to do an info product. I'm going to do a coaching service. I'm going to yeah. do, I was doing golf and now I'm going to do tap dance and mm-hmm. you're not a good golfer or a good tap dancer. You're just picking things because you think that they're good ideas. 
Yeah. That's not something I see particularly yeah. succeed. The people that succeed, and it has to be said, are I mean, I'm sure their IQs test well above average. Mm-hmm. Um, what else are the traits? I, perseverance has blown me away. People have come from behind for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Just sticking with it. I think they're generally Pivoting, sticking with it, but pivoting, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, I'm doing fitness YouTube, but I was doing it this way and now I'm doing it this way and I was doing it this way and now I'm doing it this way. So they're kind of like a bowling ball with bumpers, if that makes sense. Like they're always going forward, but they're, they're hitting the wall and pivoting as it's well. The Well, and even just to uh, perhaps a more clear analogy, it's, it's the people that I know that like switch industry many times, industry, I have not done as well as the people who have stayed in the same industry and approach it from a different way. Mm-hmm. So like I'm doing our one buddy, the jump rope dudes. First, Brandon was entrepreneur fitness. Then he was Zen dude fitness. Then he was, it was always, they were going to do base jump at one point. It was always fitness related and they were just finding their angle, their way of communicating that landed. And we were in the same boat. Um, we did have one industry switch from parkour to social skills and charisma which is reasonable. Like you're allowed to don't think that you have to stick with the thing that you're not doing well at forever. But the, uh, if you're changing every couple of months, you are not building a sustainable skill set or asset in all likelihood. Anything else? Um, what was, what was else was in the intelligence. question? Um, yeah. So the next part was, uh, like, do you think that people who it didn't work out for, um, do you think it's because of that person or outside circumstances? I think for the people in my sphere, it's because of that person. Now, that's you could you could say that their level of God-given intelligence is outside their circumstances. You could say that their level of receptivity to good advice is outside circumstances. Well, sure, if you're a determinist, <laughs> it's, it's always outside. just. But uh, it's it's due to that person in my experience. Based things that we would typically like, it's not like oh the economic crisis broke them. It it's not that. It's mindset and receptivity to good advice. Um, one of the biggest things that I keep think keeps people stuck is in inability to honestly assess their situation because mm-hmm. their ego has gotten involved with it, mm-hmm. and that screws a lot of people. And it's particularly tough in the like the make money industry forces you to believe that you're really successful. So you say that you're going to make money so that you have to say that you're making money. You can't admit that you're not doing well. And that that's just a vicious spiral because you have a business. If you have a business that isn't working, you're not, your ego will not allow you to confront that fact and take the steps to adjust it because you have to pretend to be making money constantly. Um, yeah. Low ego. Go ahead. Cool. Um, and then the last part was what are these successful traits I think I said uh, perseverance, intelligence. Is, I feel like yeah, there should right. be a third. Yeah, yeah. I would say perseverance, intelligence, and a willingness to learn from other people. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's pretty massive in the people that I know. Everybody had mentors or was going to workshops or was asking advice. I would say also that if there's a bit of, here's the dumb luck in getting the right early mentors. Mm-hmm. So like if you, I'm not going to say any names, but there's plenty of bad people that you could fall into. Mm-hmm. We fell into Tim Ferriss, who was like, everything is bullshit. <laughs> Ignore 90% of the business advice you get. Stick with essentialism, um, marketing step-by-step. But other people get these other gurus that um, a lot of them are on YouTube, quite frankly, making tons of videos about how to make money, for instance, on uh, you name the, the thing du jour, whatever, the drop shipping or the uh, social media marketing agency, whatever. If you get a bad early mentor, it can screw you up a lot, which yeah. is why I'm like, 
big on first read the four hour work week, then check out marketing step by step. I truly think those are the right mentors. This is going to go on YouTube, right? This isn't for Patreon. Yep. Okay. We should link to uh, the ebonpagantraining.com slash charisma. We have a marketing step-by-step -step is the second thing we recommend for every entrepreneur. It's normally $1,000. We have a link to it for $97. So in terms of getting the right mentors, I would say read the four-hour work week and then go through that course. And that, I think that took us a really good way with yeah. Charisma on Command. And then it's running lean. We've talked about it, running lean by Ash Maria. Like there's there's three and four, but do one and two first. <laughs> um, if you can't get through a book or a program, it's unlikely that you will stick with. Yeah, I just think of our business knowledge with the parkour business and then going through marketing step-by-step and our business knowledge afterwards yeah. was, tr for an entrepreneur, like tremendously upgraded, much oh, yeah. more so than my four years at business school. We, we called it, bcx parkour dude we would yeah. have named it something that didn't suck yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah um but yeah all right uh last one is i'm a 20 year old single guy who lives in the middle of a lot of cities where there isn't much to do all my friends and other people my age who i know use dating apps but i can't get into them i've tried several but i can't get into them i have no motivation or excitement in texting a screen um in comparison to when i'm talking to somebody in person even if i end up getting rejected my question is, do you guys have any advice for how to meet more people in person, friends or love interests? Because online doesn't really do it for me. This person lives in a major city? I think they in live between. I guess there's cities yeah, like around them, around. but they're not nearby. So they're in a suburb. Yes, or rural. Harder? Yes, so harder. Um, the first thing is, and just this might not be a yes for you, but just so you know, you don't have to like have long text conversations. And I get that it's probably harder if you're suburban, but perhaps, um, you know, hey, I'm, my my dating apps have traditionally been a simple question do you like this thing so take like uh, are you a big salsa dancer have you ever gone before no i've never done it uh cool there's the spot where they have salsa dancing would you like to check it out sometime sure okay how does saturday at eight sound like i, I agree i don't want to talk to a bunch of people via text but i might be interested in meeting someone and i don't know how long the drive is for you but if there's a cool place that you could invite people out to maybe reconsider the dating apps is one thing just use it as a way to uh and a little bit of time to know that you're going to meet someone in person. Yeah, there are people who text for literally months and then do meet up with someone. But I would almost bet that it's more likely you see someone if you ask them out relatively quickly. Because I think that the person on the other end of the phone is also disinterested yeah, in yeah. sending texts with a random person for a significantly long period of time that they don't know. Uh, for me, when I was uh, doing this during COVID, I found going to FaceTime was the easiest yes because it's such an easy thing to do versus, oh yeah, let's go to a bar or let's go drive 30 minutes. Just, hey, text, text, a couple back and forth. You seem you seem cool. I'm not a huge fan mm -hmm. of texting. Do you want to hop on a FaceTime for 15 minutes sometime this week? And I say 15 minutes just to keep it short. Yeah. And then I talk to them and I see, it's nice because it saves you that bad first date. You just see if you hit it off enough to want to see the person. Mm -hmm. And what's nice is, I can't think of anyone that flaked after a FaceTime call. Like if you're texting, even if you're texting a bunch, maybe the date ends up falling through. But once I FaceTimed with someone, I ended up, if I wanted to go out, we, we ended up meeting up, I think yeah. every time. Yeah. So that that's what I was doing because I also don't so, want to text a hundred times. That's dating. And then beyond that, I don't know if it's still good, but back in the day, meetup.com would have like, hey, there's a hiking group going out. There's a this. Uh, meeting people over common interests is great. And it's meetup.com. So like, that's what they're there for. Yeah. Uh, also, you can go like work. I used to work in coffee shops instead of working from home. 
just, I would still do my work. I'd sit there for four hours, but then if someone I was attracted to happened to be in the coffee shop also working, just gives you someone to talk to in person. So you don't have to go to the apps. So I was putting myself in public places more often. Yeah. So groups like improv comedy, uh, that kind of stuff. But at the end, I, I do remember, I just recalls like I used to have these Google docs where I was writing things about what I needed in my life. And I remember one of them was location, location, location. And it is, uh, something that I take for granted because it's always been at the absolute tippy top of my mm -hmm. list in terms of the decisions that I make. So it's become background noise to me, but you, if you live in a spot that you're like, I can't go to the improv cause that's two hours away and I can't go to this and the coffee shop near me has nothing going on. Then a priority of yours, if socializing is a priority needs to be going somewhere where that can be done mm. better. Uh, I've, I've a uh, huge fan of this and I've lived it. I've made dramatic changes in my life in order to shift my location either within a city or city to city or from suburb to city uh it affects everything mm -hmm. and uh, i could talk about the finer nuances of it like literally down to if you live five minute drive from someone or a 50 foot walk there's a that's a 10x difference of how often you'll see them mm -hmm. um but if yeah if you're not in an area where you can do these kinds of things it's it's almost an infinite difference of how often you're likely to do something so make that a priority i would say if if everything you're everything that we've said you're going i can't do that then i think that you probably need to make getting to a different place a priority sure yeah i mean when we were 23 i think we moved to an apartment for the two of us that was like 400 square feet or something absolutely insanely small because it was the perfect location for socializing and going out and having fun and doing all that and then for that period of time, it was a great decision. I don't think that's necessarily Lower what I would do at 34. We downsized. <laughs> I mean, we, we went yeah. to a smaller location. We went to the Lower East Side. It was expensive. Um, but it was and, awesome for that yeah. purpose at that period of time. And it so, was, to be clear, it wasn't, it wasn't a good apartment. It was a lousy apartment. No, it was in a tenement <laughs> building. It was, it was stairs yeah, only. Yeah, it was like, like the cool Lower East Side was all over here. And then it was like the not so good. And we were like right there. We're like, yeah, no, it was, across, the, it was the, just across it was the, the ghetto that the Jews used to live in. People would come for a tour. Yeah. It was, a, it was literally a, like a tenement building. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Um, yeah. I couldn't really like shut the bathroom door. <laughs> if you were, if you were trying to take a pee cause it would hit you. That's New York though. Um, so yeah. Location. Cool. That was the last one. That's it. We'll see the rest of you on Patreon. Thanks everybody.